0: Virginia Prescott with On Second Thought from GPB. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor will be speaking about her new children's book, Just ask, be different, be brave, be you, at Agnes Scott College on Sunday. That Decatur Book Festival event sold out in minutes. But don't despair. Today, we've got a rare personal conversation with a Supreme Court justice. I spoke with Sonia Sotomayor a few years ago for Writers on a New England Stage. That's a collaboration between New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It is a gem of a restored Beaux-Arts theater where I hosted interviews recorded in front of a live audience. It's great. There's an in-house band. The audience submits questions. It's a real party. So let's get to it. When President Barack Obama nominated the first Hispanic and third female Supreme Court justice back in 2009, he championed the real-world experiences of a woman born to Puerto Rican immigrants and raised in the housing projects of the South Bronx and Queens. Sonia's father was a factory worker with a third-grade education who didn't speak English. But like Sonia's mother, he had a willingness to work hard,
1: a strong sense of family, and a belief in the American dream. When Sonia was nine, her father passed away, and her mother worked six days a week as a nurse to provide for Sonia and her brother, who's also here today, as uh, a doctor, uh, and a, a, a terrific success in his own right. Uh, but but Sonia's mom uh, bought the only set of encyclopedias in the neighborhood sent her children to a Catholic school called Cardinal Spellman out of a belief that with a good education here in America, all things are possible.
0: Sonia Sotomayor went on to excel at Princeton and Yale before embarking on a legal career as a public prosecutor, a private litigator, and eventually a judge. In 2013, she published a remarkably candid view of her life before being named a justice in her best-selling memoir, My Beloved World. I have ventured to write more intimately about my personal life than is customary for a member of the Supreme Court, she writes in the preface of My Beloved World, and it is an unvarnished glimpse of her material poverty, of managing the chronic illness of diabetes from the age of seven, her father's death from alcoholism, and the psychic wounds of feeling like an outsider at Ivy League universities. Sonia Sotomayor's rise to the nation's highest court is a story of fierce determination, Determination, unflappable will, and considerable self-knowledge. Attributes all on display to the sold-out crowd at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. In fact, the justice had traveled overnight through a heavy East Coast blizzard to get there. Justice Sotomayor, today people were asking whether or not this event would be held tonight, you know, whether you'd get through the snow, and I said to my colleagues, I read this book, This Woman Can Do Anything. <laughs> But, if you
1: read the book, you know it's always with help. And I surround myself with wonderful people. And the wonderful people who got me here are public servants. The United States Marshals that were with me in Pittsburgh last night and who heard that my plane was canceled and they figured out a plan of driving me last night from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia. It took us eight hours. You know, in this day and age when we're sometimes disappointed in the way government functions, (laughs) um, it is really important to remember that we have public servants who do their job in heroic, yeoman- and yeoman like ways, and who are
0: dedicated. I thank them. Well, I can say personally that it is an honor, but we are speaking to a justice of the Supreme Court, um, so I just want to let everybody know that off-base will be any prior or pending cases. We're going to be talking about her story, which is so rich and wonderful that I'm sure we won't be disappointed. Yes, you you did figure out that asking for help was essential in your life. But early in your life, you had what you called an existential independence. And as early as seven years old, you were becoming self-reliant. I'm thinking of the story that you tell in the book about giving yourself your insulin shots when it was discovered that you had juvenile diabetes. Can
1: you tell us that story? This is really the first chapter of the book. I had to find a vehicle in the book to introduce my family, to introduce the family dynamic. And so as I thought about my youth, I realized that on many levels, my diagnosis of diabetes was a major turning point in my life. It's a condition that altered my eating habits, that altered myself perceptions about my health and fundamentally altered my expectations of my future. And so I felt that it provided a wonderful backdrop to all of those issues. And what happened was that I got out of the hospital. The first morning, Mom gave me my shot. My mother, who was then a practical nurse, was so anxiety-ridden. I can't say nervous, but so unhappy that I saw the resolve in her face and she sort of turned steel cold and she reared back and it was like she punched me in the arm. The next day, um, when my dad did it, he trembled so much that I was afraid he was gonna hit me somewhere in the face or neck, okay? and he hurt too, okay? Imagine somebody giving you a shot when they're shaking, okay? The third day I got up, which was a Sunday, and they were arguing, as they did quite frequently, about who would give me the shot. And the familiar themes of my family's fighting, um, my father's alcoholism, my mother's need to work to help support the family, all of those things came out, as did some of the things that frightened me. The fact that I would need these shots for the rest of my life, the fact that someone would likely have to give them to me. And as I was listening to this, I realized that what they were saying was that I was going to not be able to stay with my grandmother who was my refuge and my protector in life. And I knew because I knew her that it would be too painful for her to give me that injection. And I knew I had to do it myself.
0: You're listening to my earlier conversation with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, recorded live for the Writers on a New England Stage series. And a note here that we did record the conversation when Justice Antonin Scalia was alive and before Justice Anthony Kennedy retired. Well, you. Talk about your experiences and, and the insecurities that plagued you uh, as you were growing up, especially when you went into Princeton, entered the Ivy League, the things that you I were so about. I still have them.
1: I'm on the Supreme Court and I'm still insecure. <laughs> <laughs> people talk as, I've, as though they've left me, OK? <laughs> um, I, I, no, I, I talk about in the book that, that insecurities are a constant part, I think, of most people in some form. Mm. I, I think if you, if you don't feel a little bit ang- of anxiety in a new setting, then there may be something emotionally wrong with you. <laughs> um, o- only because I'm only jesting. But I think any new experience brings the unknown.
0: There was also a lot of your culture that separated you from at least your peers at that time in the Ivy League, certainly.
1: Absolutely. I had vastly different life experiences from most of my classmates at Princeton.
0: Well, and I'm also wondering about now, I mean, you write in the book about your grandmother, this warm, wonderful woman you just described, your abuelita, conducting seances, I guess, is, for lack of a better word. She was a healer. She would channel spirit voices. I'm She just one, and my
1: grandfather.
0: Well, how did that go? I, I can't imagine that being in Chief Justice John Roberts' memoir for some reason. <laughs> so... How have the other justices on the court responded to your book?
1: This is very funny. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, one of the purposes of my book and and why I chose to be as candid as I was is I have learned through the school of hard knocks, and I describe some of it in my book, that there's a cost for hiding things from people. Mm -hmm and that there's an advantage to sharing with people. When you show people your vulnerability, more often than not, I'm not gonna say always, but more often than not, people will open themselves to you. I tell this story because reflective of that was the fact that my colleague, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, every time she read a couple of chapters when she next saw me, she would share something that was similar in her life. Mm. Others, like Steve Breyer, said to me, I think I understand you now. Um, (laughs) Others haven't said anything, but I think that's just... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they've had thoughts about my grandmother and thoughts about me, but I've given them the opportunity, if they choose, to open themselves more to me, and some have.
0: Well, of course, you all bring to it your own experience, and I I was fascinated to read about when you did finally get to the Ivy League. Um, You actually didn't know what the Ivy League was. I'm curious about other things you feel like you didn't know, and maybe a little bit about that first Ivy League experience. I was really amused to read about your first visit to Harvard.
1: I took a train to Harvard. And it was a rainy, soggy day. I was drenched by the time I got off the train, and i 'm looking around boston and i 'm in cambridge and i 'm thinking to myself, "This is as much a city as New York City is, but at any rate, I walk into the office where I was meeting the person who was going to be interviewing and talking to me and I walk into a room and there I see this Perfectly coffered woman with this platinum silver hair, two white chairs, a wingback chairs, a white couch, the most spectacular red oriental rug. Now, as I just say in my book, I came from a family where nobody owned anything that was white And nobody owned furniture that wasn't covered in plastic. (laughs) And I was dumbfounded. As you can tell, I'm usually not at a loss for words. (laughs) It may be one of the few times where I just couldn't talk to this woman. I don't know, I don't think I was there 10 or 15 minutes. I can't tell you a word that we exchanged. I fled. I ran out of that room and I retraced my steps home. I walked into my apartment at home and my mother looked at me and said, why are you here? You were supposed to stay there overnight. And my response was, mom, I don't belong there. And. It is really strange to say that because then I went to Princeton. (laughs) But the difference was in my interview experience. At Princeton, there was the friend who had encouraged me to apply to the Ivy League schools. He's the one who met me at the bus. He's the one who introduced me to his friends. And as to be expected, his friends were closer to our life experiences. And so it was less intimidating to
0: me. Associate Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire for the Writers on a New England Stage series. And we will be back after a short break to talk about more of her surprisingly candid stories from her memoir, My Beloved World. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of Sonia Sotomayor on this special edition of On Second Thought.
1: Que viva chango.
0: Que viva chango. We'll yeah. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we are back with On Second Thought from GPB and Sonia Sotomayor. The Supreme Court Justice's appearance during the AJC Decatur Book Festival this weekend sold out in minutes, but we are giving GPB listeners a rare chance to hear her talk about how she came to sit on the nation's highest court, and that is thanks to the generosity of the Music Hall in Portsmouth and New Hampshire Public Radio. They're co-producers of the Writers on a New England Stage series, which I hosted for years. Sonia Sotomayor is the first Hispanic Supreme Court Justice, the first to have thrown out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium, and the only one yet to appear on Sesame Street. Here she is counseling Abby Cadabby on career choices.
1: A career is a job that you train for and prepare for and plan on doing for a long time. Ooh, I know a career that I want to have. What's that? I want a career as a princess. Career. Abby, pretending to be a princess is fun, but it is definitely not a career. It's not?
0: No. Justice Sotomayor may also be the only Supreme Court justice who walked to school on pavement littered with discarded syringes and tourniquets. Her path from housing project to Ivy League to prosecutor to litigator to judge is the subject of her 2013 memoir, My Beloved World. I spoke with her the year after it came out. Just before the break, we talked about how Sonia Sotomayor felt like an outsider in the Ivy League. Let's pick up the conversation, where she learns just how different she was. Well, even though there were people who were sympathetic souls at Princeton, it was there that in a work-study job you were doing data input, and you had access to the financial records of your classmates. And this was a revelation to you. It was amazing. It was the upper
1: edge... No, no, no. I... (laughs) There had been a survey done of, of the more well-to-do members of my class, and almost all of the kids were earning 25000 $30,000 during the summer. And I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, what kind of jobs are they doing? <laughs> you know, I worked every summer, and I wasn't earning anywhere near that. <laughs> I was at minimum wage. And I was, like, in a state of shock. I finally realized at the end of the survey, putting two and two together, that they were working at daddy's firm, business, getting paid that much money to pay their tuition. Mm -hmm. And I presume that the business was taking off the payment as a tax deduction. I, I think the government has closed that loophole. But this was the early part of this sort of thinking. And I was shocked at the amount of money that I saw people earning. Look, I made a friend in Princeton, an African-American man, who I ended up liking a whole, whole lot. He was from a, well, not a military family. His dad was in the military. But his dad and his uncles were all doctors and he spent an entire bus ride back to New York with me complaining about the fact that he was the son of the poorest member of their family because all of his uncles were in private practice making much, much more money than his dad. And at one point, I got up the nerve to say, so how much is your dad earning in the military? And he said, well, maybe 80, $100,000. Spent the rest of the ride listening to him. And when I got off the bus, I looked at him and said, not my friend, but his name, it is somewhat hard for me to understand this. My mom supports us on $5,000 a year. Um, But that showed you how different the life was that I had walked into.
0: But you never write about Being angry or resentful, it was actually when you were visiting Yale, I believe, in a similar looking at colleges, that you are turned off by the kind of victimization, by the throaty kind of we are the minorities and we're not getting our due. You know, a lot of people could take this tack and say, like, I'm going to fight against this. My my family lives on $5,000 a year. But, you know, I think there's value to some people fighting about that.
1: People who protest and people who point to the unfairnesses in life have a role. They make us not complacent about situations that are unequal, about unfairness. So I don't criticize those people. Why do you think it wasn't your tack? Because it was not my personality. You know, I talk in the book about the fact that even though I'm assertive, in the courtroom, and I was an assertive lawyer. I'm not an angry, confrontational person. Mm-hmm. Sarcasm is not my strong suit. And, and there are some lawyers who use sarcasm to great effect in the courtroom. But you have to judge yourself, your own strengths, and figure out what approaches, A, make you happy, And B, help you do positive things. And so, no, the revolution wasn't my tactic of doing things. I worked from within. Mm -hmm. It's what I've done my entire life to affect sometimes small changes, sometimes slightly bigger changes. But
0: I knew that it was my way. Here's a question from the audience. Is there an informal sisterhood between the three female justices and a, a recognition of the hurdles you shared, a perspective you bring that had been muted for 200 years? Recently,
1: we were at either a conference or lunch, the justices. And we were all talking about periods in the court's life where they had been really overt hostility and anger between and among justices. And one of my colleagues says, when did that change and why? And uh, Justice Ginsburg piped up, when you started having women on the court. Oh. All right. and, and, and I actually sat back to think about it and realized it's not that some of us are not confrontational or or sort of assertive. Um, One day, uh, Justice Scalia looked at me and said, Sonia, I love you. You're just like me. You're a pit dog when you have something that you want (laughs) to convince somebody about. It's not that. But I do think that, As women, we bring a relationship to the table, a sort of humanity to the relationship that might be different.
0: You're listening to an archive conversation with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. I spoke with her about her 2013 memoir, My Beloved World. She will be in Georgia this weekend to talk about her new children's book, Just Ask, Be Different, Be Brave, Be You, during the Decatur Book Festival. Well, it was at Princeton that you did embrace some level of activism. You joined the Acción Puerto Ricania, and then... That's pretty good. I did my best. Don't, don't,
1: don't, don't leave out the amigos. We were so few in number at Princeton... <laughs> the amigos. ...that we took in anybody who didn't have a group. So Native Americans joined us. Um, uh, you know, anybody who didn't have a group, they came to our group.
0: <laughs> and then later at Yale, the... Um, Latino, Asian, Native American group, the LANA group. I told you, the same thing. Very, very, we weren't big enough
1: in numbers to have a group by ourselves.
0: But this is, you're right, the students there, at Yale especially, were eager to assimilate as quickly and as thoroughly as possible, bearing any attendant challenges and psychic costs in private. What were the psychic costs? You know, when you walk into
1: or leave an environment that you grew up in. There can be a great danger of disconnecting with the very people who have nurtured and raised you, with the people who have been a fundamental part of your life. I bet if I ask everyone in this room what their favorite meal is, that the vast majority of people would talk about a dish that either their mother or grandmother cooked whose flavor and taste has never left their memory. But when you decide to move into a totally different environment, assimilate by forgetting where and what you came from, the psychic cost is of disconnection, of often feeling as if you're unrooted from the plantation that started you that 's why I think it's a it, it is important and has been to me never to forget where I came from, what i 've been a part of, and to learn how to live in the worlds that i 've entered and so for me, it was a fine balance, but one that I have maintained throughout my entire life because Who Sonia is, is her family. It's the memories of my grandmother. It's the seances and my cousins and I laughing about them. It's my grandmother's uh, rice and bean soup that no one has ever duplicated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But do you feel that those cultural awarenesses have had a positive influence on your fellow Supreme Court justices? And if so, how? You know, at the end of my first year,
1: uh, the law clerks put on a roast of the justices. And we all attend. Um, That first year, part of the roast was introducing me and roasting me for my entry into the court. (laughs) And it, the show ended with one of the law clerks taking me out to dance salsa. So we're dancing salsa, and I decide, oh, this is no fun, me dancing up here by myself. And I went out and grabbed every one of the justices. And they all danced. Really? Could they get down? Yep. <laughs> even, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had just lost her husband, Aww. got up. And did it, um, and so I don't know what influence I have on them as individuals. I'm not even sure what influence I'll have on the court. People think that five years on the court is a long time in the life of a justice. That's a drop in the bucket. It's the beginning of you developing yourself, your jurisprudence, your views on the on what being a justice means to you and to your view of the development of law. And so I'm at the very beginning of my judicial life as a justice. And so I'm still sort of adjusting, learning the ropes. But I think this year I've begun to realize that I'm a little bit more comfortable. And in fact, um, this year, I have actually changed my work schedule. I used to work the weekends before oral arguments, Saturday and Sunday, full days in the office. And now I decided that I'm not going to go in either morning till noon. And I try to do something with the morning so I
0: explore D.C. a little bit. We, We have a lot of questions about that. Your daily routine, how she fits in your meals and exercise and sleep and, you know, what you have for lunch. You know... I go to the gym during the week,
1: minimum two times. I try to go on the weekend once. I like exercising. And in September, I bought a bicycle. And one of the Saturday morning things I've been doing is exploring DC, Virginia, and Maryland by biking. At one time in my life, I rode a century 100 miles. Um I'm out of shape now. (laughs) I don't know if I can get back there, but I'm going to try. Um, What are my days like? For the young students here, they're going to think a little boring. I spend most of my days when I'm not in court reading, thinking, and writing. That's the life of a justice. We are reading the briefs, that lawyers have given us. We're reading our own cases so that we can apply them to the new set of facts before us. We're thinking about how to resolve those cases and we're writing not just opinions, often we're writing memos to each other. The memos can have to do with our views of a draft that someone else has circulated um, or other times it's an issue that has arisen in a case that we're considering whether we're going to take it and hear oral argument. But in the midst of all of that, I'm meeting with groups, and we get hundreds of thousands of people who visit the Supreme Court. I invite everybody in this audience, if you've never been to your nation's capital, our nation's capital, go. Go. First of all, it's one of the few cities that I've been to where virtually all of the museums are free. It's also relatively affordable. But more importantly, the Capitol affects you because the things that happen there affect your lives. The Supreme Court gives wonderful tours. So does the Capitol almost all of the public buildings, like the Library of Congress, is the most amazing tour you could ever take. If you haven't been there, then you're missing the greatest library in the world. And so my day, yes, sounds boring, unless you recognize that what I'm doing, I'm passionate about, being a voice in making some of the most important legal decisions that face the country is an incredible privilege. And because it is a privilege, it's important for me never to abuse it, to be as well prepared in making my decisions as I humanly can be. And to spend as much time as I need reading, thinking, and writing, so that at least my
0: vote is well-informed. Thank you. Associate Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor there, talking about the responsibility of serving on the nation's highest court. Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for the Writers on a New England Stage series. We will be back after a short break to hear more from her memoir, My Beloved World, Hear her advice to young girls growing up today, and why it's not easy for a Supreme Court justice to date. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of Sonia Sotomayor on this special edition of On Second Thought. Yeah, ready? Go on, baby. Clap your hands, everybody, if you got it takes
1: because i'm curtis blow and i want you to know that these are the boys
0: we're back with on second thought from gpb i'm virginia prescott The Supreme Court is the most mysterious of government institutions. We do hear the oral arguments and decisions, but know little about the dynamics inside of the chambers of the nation's highest court. Well, today, a rare chance to hear Sonia Sotomayor. This is from my earlier conversation for writers on a New England stage. As a sitting justice of the Supreme Court, she would not comment on cases, but did talk with me in front of a live audience about her personal story and inner life, all covered in her memoir, My Beloved World. We included some questions submitted by the audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth during the tour for the paperback version of her book in 2014. Earlier in the show, we spoke about some of the relative disparities and challenges which shaped her and in some cases hardened her. I asked her about a pivotal moment she covered in the book. She'd graduated from Yale Law School and was gaining fluency in the real-world justice system as an assistant district attorney in Manhattan. She describes growing increasingly distant from her own heart during that difficult job and was given good advice about connecting to the humanity of those on trial and those deciding their fate.
1: The DA's office was broken up into what others would call uh, divisions or departments. And I was in a trial division or department, the bureau. One of my bureau chiefs I went to talk to after I lost two cases back to back. And he sat me down and he said, tell me what you did. And I recited the evidence in both cases and he was very patient listening to me. And I looked at him at the end and I said, I shouldn't have lost these cases. I don't know why I did. And he looked and he said, "You haven't convinced the jury that it was their obligation to convict." What mean? Even well, you know, when he explained it to me, it made eminent sense to me. It's hard to judge another human being. There is nothing easy about sitting in judgment about the facts of a case that may affect deeply another person. And judges can tell jurors all they want, don't think about the punishment, that's my job. But I think most jurors, it enters their mind. And what my bureau chief was trying to explain to me, and which he did explain to me, you have to, in the trial, get jurors to understand that it is their civic responsibility to convict if the evidence is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And the only way you can do that is to show them your passion about being right and to show them your integrity in the work as you're presenting it to them. And I never lost a case after that. I took his advice and thought about how sort of black and white and, you know, this is the evidence, the facts, ma'am, the facts, ma'am. You you remember Dragnet, right? (laughs) Um, That's what I had been as a prosecutor up to that point. But I became a different lawyer. I understood that lawyering is about persuasion. It's about convincing people that what you're saying is right. And so that changed me as a lawyer. And I think ultimately it helped change me as a person because I realized that those attributes, passion, connectivity with people, those are life skills and they're life skills that draw you closer to people.
0: Well, I'm thinking about your narrative of your marriage. You were married when you were quite young. And high school sweethearts. High school sweethearts, uh-huh. right? And you started the job at the DA's office working really hard, trying to get your find your feet. And your marriage broke up and you, you you say that it was the demands of the job and your husband felt that you didn't really need him.
1: Of any passage that created more controversy among all of my readers. It was that passage. Really? Why do you think? Uh Um, As most of them explained it, and and it was more controversy by the women in my life. You know, I had a number of women friends who read the book, the draft of the book. First of all, some feared that I would scare off any other potential man (laughs) in my life. That was some of the guys, okay? (laughs) And then some of my women friends thought that it might feel insulting to some other women for me to say that need shouldn't be a part of love. And so they forced me to explain what I meant in in, in a more nuanced way. And I think I I hope I accomplished that in the book. My husband felt that that existential self reliance that I had meant that I didn't need him. He said to me as we were breaking up, I always felt that if I died tomorrow, you would cry, but you would pick up the day after. And that hurt. It really hurt to hear him say that because I loved him. And I knew that at least for between both of us, there had been real love at some point that I didn't make him feel important enough in my life was my failure. But I wasn't sure that that had to translate into need. To need someone is different than to want someone. And I think that difference is what guides me, to want to share a life with another person. Um, And I haven't given up hope I'll meet somebody. I understand it's a little intimidating,
0: (laughs) but I am the eternal optimist. Well, I think it must be be difficult after growing up as you did. Even though you had examples of true warmth, you also had a lot of pain. Um, You had a a very beloved cousin, Nelson. Mm. You say you were almost twins when you were kids who became a heroin addict and actually died of AIDS. I'm so sorry because the the descriptions of him are so warm and beautiful. Can I tell you a
1: story? Please.
0: Um, The only person
1: who I shared, besides my brother and my mother, who I shared a draft of the book with was Nelson's sister, my cousin Miriam. When you read the book, and I hope you will, You'll know how important she is in my life, and she's an amazing woman. But I felt I needed her and her mother's permission to share Nelson's story with the world. Miriam apparently read the book. She started after dinner one night and spent the entire night and through the night reading it. And the next morning she called me up and said that after she finished it, she couldn't stop crying. She said she had talked to her mom and that they had both agreed that I was bringing Nelson back alive and that I was giving his life the potential of meaning. And she said that if his story could help even one child avoid his path, then it was worth telling the story. So I'm really grateful to my cousin. Um, because I loved Nelson, and she knows that. Um, By the way, there were members of my uncle's family who had not known Nelson died of AIDS. Oh, my goodness. So the book was quite a disclosure.
0: You're listening to my conversation with Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. Sonia Sotomayor will be in Georgia to talk about her new children's book, Just Ask, this weekend. How about for your mother? I'm, I'm wondering about that, because you, there, you go through some difficult times with your mother. Uh, when you were young, you mentioned your father was an alcoholic. She worked a lot. She may have kept herself out of the family, uh, out of the household anyway. And there was a sense of abandonment there. But what does she think of this book? My mother,
1: um, like Justice Ginsburg, because of her aging eyes, can't read in one sitting. So she was reading it. She read it in three installments, three consecutive nights. And every night she called me crying. The first night she ended with chapter seven, which is my favorite chapter of the book. It's a chapter of my mom's life. What I don't know if I got across enough in the book or not is that My mom and I spent a lot of time working through our relationship. We really had worked at coming to terms with each of our emotions, not just about each other, but about the life that she had had, I had and was having. And I knew that by the time I wrote this book, that my mother would understand, and she did. Um, My mother said that when she finished the book that she heard my voice in her ears. Mm -hmm. So I knew that the book had really
0: gotten my voice in. Well, you so vividly speak of growing up, and and at a point in the book, I think it, maybe when you were working for the DA, you realized that, What I learned in my childhood among the Latinos of the Bronx proved to be as relevant to my success as Ivy League schooling was. Now, I wonder about that. Those experiences, and I've got a question here from the audience that may actually ask this in another way. It says, I grew up in the Smith projects on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I was the only sibling to leave the projects and wondered what you thought about the resiliency in people of our backgrounds. A teacher believed in me. You'll read in my book
1: that I believe that no successful person exists unless they find that one teacher, that one person in their life who believes in them. Mine was my grandmother. She gave me unconditional love. Your teacher must have given you confidence. You don't live in the world that you, I grew up in, in public housing, in South Bronx, which is Fort Apache. Some of people here may remember that Fort Apache when I was growing up, was the most crime-written neighborhood in the nation. It's a hard life to grow up in that neighborhood. But one of the purposes of my book was to remind people that in all of those environments, whether it's the South Bronx or the poorest neighborhood in New Hampshire or the streets of Chicago, the tough streets of Chicago, there are human beings there who are living lives with the hopes and dreams that everybody in this audience has. And that's what I wanted to leave people with. You gotta look behind the crime and the drugs and the dirt and the deteriorating buildings. And you've got to look at the faces because many of them are like you.
0: Well, you, your story embodies the American dream. Young woman, bilingual household, raised by your mother, father an alcoholic, living in the projects. But what about now? What about those who say that it is no longer possible for somebody who is growing up in that kind of environment to excel? I
1: think it's harder. I think it's harder in part today because the quality of education in those neighborhoods has deteriorated substantially. Mm -hmm. The cost, you know, my mom could afford, through hard work, to send my brother and I to Catholic school. First, because after my dad died, we were a two-for-one. And it was $25 a month. I think it's harder because we don't have people, some people in these neighborhoods, who are actually working directly with kids to help them see a different world and a different life. One thing that was wonderful for me in the the projects is we could play outside during the day. There were no no areas like we couldn't go into stairwells, because there was always uh, paraf- drug paraphernalia in the, sa- in the stairways. But during the day the neighborhood
0: was safe,
1: that doesn't exist today.
0: You were nine years old when your father died. I've got a question from the audience: What advice you would give to a nine-year-old girl today? Learn to
1: have real fun. Let me describe to you what I mean by real fun. I think that there's nothing more exciting in the world than to be curious about the world, to learn something new every single day of your life. Because when you do that, it's exciting. It's exciting to share information with people, It's exciting to know something you didn't know the day before. And sometimes it's useful. So have that kind of fun. Playing games is lovely. I play poker. (laughs) You know why I play it? Because it lets me use some of my strategy and math skills. Because you have to calculate the odds of winning. Every time I'm playing with people, I get to learn something new about how to play the game better. And that's what I mean about fun. Be curious about the world. And the second bit of advice I'm gonna give you at nine year old, you feel better when you're being nice to other people. It is really meaningful when you do a kind thing for someone else. Sometimes all it takes is seeing someone sad and saying, I'm sorry you're sad. If you can go to sleep every night and say, what did I learn new every night? And every night say to yourself, what nice thing did I do today? How did I help somebody? you're going to have a really incredible life. You're going to be successful. You're going to have good friends. And at the end of the day, you're going to like yourself. And I don't know that there's much else to living than to end up liking you.
0: Justice Sonia Sotomayor there with some wise words for a nine-year-old girl. I spoke with the Justice during her 2014 My Beloved World Tour for Writers on a New England Stage. That's a partnership between the Music Hall in Portsmouth, where our conversation was recorded, and New Hampshire Public Radio. It really is a terrific series of author interviews, and there's a link to see photos from this conversation and find more interviews in the series. That is at gpbnews.org. No
1: a mi lado, en el alma solo tengo
0: Justice Sotomayor will be in Georgia during the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st, to talk about her third children's book, Just Ask. The executive producer and live stage presentation director for writers on a New England stage is Patricia Lynch. Live sound recording and mixing by Rachel Neubauer. The broadcast was produced for NHPR by Maureen McMurray. On Second Thoughts, Jake Troyer was our remix master. Abundant thanks to Brittany Wasson at the Music Hall and Deb Turner and Taylor Quimby at NHPR for making this possible. Music from today's show from Ray Barreto, Curtis Blow, Selena Gonzalez, and Guadalupe Pineda. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of On Second Thought.